Welcome to the Envious Podcast. I am joined today by Tiffany Edwards uh, from the Chamber, Eugene Chamber of Commerce and John Van Landingham, a uh, local attorney and affordable housing advocate. Uh, the Envious Podcast is brought to you by Yimby Eugene Springfield, or Yimby Yes, which is a nonprofit devoted to making housing more affordable for all residents of our cities. Yimby stands for Yes in My Backyard because we want to stand for the idea of welcoming diversity into our neighborhoods across all spectrums, including race, socioeconomic status, and housing types. We'll be discussing housing politics and policy on this podcast from a similarly diverse array of perspectives. If you know someone who might make want to make their voice heard, please reach out to us at yimbyyes at gmail.com or visit our page, www.facebook.com slash yimbyyes. And uh, the fully fledged website is under construction. So I'm very excited about that. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we'll start with um, Tiffany. Uh, like I said, from the Eugene Chamber of Commerce, and and I, you know, don't necessarily speak for Better Housing Together, but you are with Better Housing Together. So, uh, start by just kind of chatting a little bit about yourself and and how you know why affordable housing is important to you. All right. Well, thanks for having me, Daniel. Um, so, I am the director of business advocacy for the Eugene Area Chamber of Commerce, and so generally my role is um, government relations and advocacy on behalf of the business community. And as a chamber liaison, I also sit on the Better Housing Together Coalition, which is a group of uh, close to 50 partner organizations um, that all share in common um, a desire to bring affordability, diversity, and availability to our housing here in Eugene and Springfield. And so I became involved uh, with Better Housing Together uh, just over a year ago, and the, the organization has been going strong and gaining traction, and uh, we've had a lot of great successes and a lot of uh, engagement from the community, which has been really refreshing to see. And I am really pleased to see the work that you're doing um, in, in building a coalition around saying yes in my backyard. Um, and yes to planned growth and to welcoming more people and more housing types uh, to the neighborhood. And so um, I think that that is a really important as we move forward. I'm a big proponent of planning for growth. It's inevitable. Um, and I'd really like to see, um, you know, more, more individuals and neighborhood groups and, and other stakeholders instead of kind of looking at how they might try to preserve what they consider neighborhood livability or whatnot, looking at ways in which they can take, take on their fair share of the expected growth and you know, provide solutions and ideas um, and ways that they want to welcome new, you know, new housing types and new members of our community. So. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that. I think that the the idea of Yimbyism is definitely gaining traction. I, um, you know, on my just on my project team on Leadership Eugene Springfield, I had a great anecdote come up recently from uh, one of our uh, one of our members who I'd, I'd love to get on a future podcast to talk a little bit about this. But there's um, sort of this. Uh, you know, in her neighborhood in Albany, uh, there are these large apartment buildings that they're trying to get built near to a school. And the neighborhood sort of assembled and was protesting it and didn't want it to happen. And, and you know, I think that, uh, you know, kind of through her leadership and, and through her sort of guidance kind of got people to look at like, well, what is the actual problem? Like, what is it actually that you're, that you're worried about? And the bottom line is they're worried about traffic. So it's like, let's not take, you know, a few hundred units 
away from people, let's address the traffic problem. And, and so sort of thinking about it in terms of what some of the other problems are rather than just focusing on the housing and trying to stop housing from being built, I think is, you know, we, we yeah. got to do, we got to do more of that. So I agree. And then uh, John Van Landingham, a local attorney and affordable housing advocate. So talk a little bit about yourself, John, and uh, kind of, you know, what, how you're involved in housing and, uh, and what, um, you know, what, how you got started with it, why you're passionate about it. So Daniel, I tell long stories, um, uh, famous for that, uh, and I'm older, and so I've been doing this a long time. I went to law school here, um, and when I went to law school, like a lot of law students, I had friends who would say to me, can my landlord do that? And I didn't know, but I would look it up. Um, I was in law school from 1973 to 77, three years in there. Um, and one of my professors was David Fromark. Um, he was a state representative at the time, and a bunch of us worked on his campaigns. He was an inspiring guy. I took a class from him called Legislation, and we had to write a paper on a recently enacted state law to just sort of understand the process. And the law I chose was the Oregon Residential Landlord and Tenant Act, which was adopted in 1973. Um, it was the first comprehensive landlord-tenant law in Oregon. And it was based on what's called a Uniform Act, drafted by a group called the Uniform Law Commission, which are a bunch of hotshot lawyers nationally. Their most famous product is the Uniform Commercial Code, which every business takes advantage oh, okay. of, um, and has been adopted by all 51 states. Um, but they also did a whole bunch of other Uniform Acts. Their, their theory is they're smarter than everybody else, and so they'll draft a better law. And two, uniformity is good. Uh, it's, especially with business, it's good to know that if you enter a contract in Washington State, you're not going to get hometown and that you can enforce that contract. So there's so anyway, they did the Uniform Residential Landlord Tenant Act in 1971. Oregon adopted it in 73. I write a paper on it for a project for Dave Frommeyer that morphs into a law review article. I do a civil a clinic program at Legal Aid program here. Legal Aid is a nonprofit that provides free legal services for nonprofit for civil matters, not criminal. Mm -hmm. If you're charged with a crime, you're entitled to a free lawyer. If you're, that's not the case with civil stuff. But so Lane County has had a Legal Aid program since the 50s. Um, when I joined in 1977, I was assigned to do Lanortello and lots of other things too, like domestic violence and divorces. And consumer matters and utility shutoffs. Um, but landlord tenant law was what I liked doing. Um, and a couple years in, my boss and I realized that avoiding evictions was good, but the real problem was a lack of affordable housing for mm -hmm. low-income people. Um, and so I started getting involved in that. I got appointed to the Community Development Block Grant Advisory Committee, ended up chairing that for a couple years. Um, and then I applied for Planning Commission. Back up a little bit further, we had some clients that asked us, my office, to represent them in preventing a building from being converted to condominiums. <laughs> and it was an outside developer, always good to have an enemy, who's <laughs> out of town. And, um, and it's opponent. like an 80s movie. Yeah, the opponent, and this guy was from New Zealand or something. Uh, and um, he wanted to convert two of the four high-rise apartment buildings in Eugene to condos. Lane Tower, uh, which is over about 17th and Olive or something, I think, and uh, Patterson Tower, which is just over here. Right. Um, and 
he was going to sell the units for like $40,000, which is not much now, but this was 1982, and so it was a lot of money there. It was going to displace a lot of lower-income people. And so we asked the city to adopt a moratorium, and the developer hired Mr. High-Powered Lawyer from Portland. Always good to have a lawyer from Portland come and lecture your city council, <laughs> um, which he did. A guy named Steve uh, Janik. And um, it was, so we were, we were, Paul Janik, exactly. <laughs> Steve Yannick is Mr. Development Law. Yeah. And he basically said, you can't do this. You can't adopt a moratorium. And um, the amazing thing that happened f was that in those days, the city council had a proponent, opponent, and neutral. So I was the proponent. I testified, blah, blah, blah. Steve Yannick comes up and, you know, I'm thinking, oh, we're, we're screwed now. And, um, but the neutral was this little woman I had never, older woman I had never seen before, introduces herself as Betty Niven. And, Betty Niven says, well, yes, you can do this. Then she starts laying out, the, she's not a lawyer, laying out the law and saying, I called so-and-so, who is a lawyer in Chicago, who is the national expert on condominium conversion, and here's the deal, blah, blah, blah. So the council actually adopts a moratorium on condominium conversions, appoints a work group. I ended up working with the work group. It was a council work group. Um, and uh, the city attorney was a man named Tim Circum, uh, who was a friend of mine. And so we write this ordinance on condominium conversions. That basically it says, yeah, you can convert. You can't stop them from converting, but you've got to hire someone. You, you developer, you have to pay a facilitator to help the people who can't buy their units to move, and pay them a month's rent to help them do the move. Um, and that ordinance is still there um, all these years later. But so then I meet Betty Niven, uh, and and then I get the planning staff encourages me to apply to the planning commission. I don't get on. I apply. I don't get on. They had a rule then, two lawyers, no more than two lawyers, no more than two people from any profession. And uh, Gatos got on, damn him. and Rand, a guy named Randy Thwing was already on, he was a lawyer. Um, but two years later, I applied again and got on. I served on the planning commission for 12 years, had a blast. Um, and then I got asked to apply to the LC, Land Conservation and Development Commission, the state's equivalent of that. Um, and I did that for 12 years, voting me chair, and so I did a lot of housing things, sort of things in that. But also at about in the early 80s, a startup group in the Whitaker neighborhood, the Whitaker Community Council, and a little group called NEDCO, which just started. Hmm. Um, in fact, I'm in communication with the three founders trying to get them to come to the 40th anniversary that Emily Ryman is trying to organize. Oh, cool. Oh. Um, I don't know if I can get them. One's in New York and one's in Seattle. But, um, you got time since September, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Anyway, so uh, Nedco asked a law prof a university professor named Dan Goldrich for help, and he says, "Well, you need a lawyer." So he goes to my boss, and my boss assigns me to help them with economic development. I I, I flunked tax law. I didn't even take corporations law. I didn't need the credits. <laughs> I had no idea I was going to do any of this stuff. So now I'm an expert on property tax exemptions and tax law for affordable housing development. Um, and I did all this work with NEDCO all those years. They did the first affordable housing cooperative in the state, in the East Blair Housing Co-op over in the Whitaker neighborhood. We did the Red Barn Market. We did amazing stuff um, for a number of years, and that sort of launched me into caring about affordable housing. There's more, but it's yeah, already taken too long. It's, it definitely makes sense why uh, whenever your name comes up, there's you or somebody mm -hmm. in the room is like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll just say, my, I first met John um, when I was working for the legislature, and he was very highly regarded. So I yeah, was, uh, 
We're very lucky. You know, the downside of doing this for a long time is that you you also make enemies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and they start to accumulate. You don't make a few here and there. You're probably not doing your job right. Exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. You can't please everyone. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, we're we're kind of here together to chat about uh, the construction excise tax. Um, uh, you know, we've got a vote coming up in city council on the eighth. Uh, there's going to be public forum that night. Um, I am trying to organize, or I should say we, uh, MBS is trying to organize, uh, you know, a bit of a call to action to try to get some people to show up. Um, it's always a fine line for me when I try to get people to show up to city council because I don't want to, you know, overwhelm the issue or get too many people and then make it seem like we're a bunch of quacks. But at the same time, getting, you know, a concise, you know, good amount of public testimony is, is really important. And I think that kind of getting some, uh, you know, really good information from the two of you who I know have worked extensively on the CET, um, I think is going to really, uh, you know, help sort of clarify and, and make sure that the people that are standing up and talking are, are, you know, speaking from somewhat of a position of authority on it. So, um, so I guess, first of all, you know, let's just start the very basically, you know, what is what is the construction excise tax and how did this idea come about? It seems like pretty unique to Oregon when I, you know, Google searching and stuff. Mm -hmm. And and so where, where did it kind of come from? Do you guys know? Do you want to take that one for the legislative from the yeah. legislative standpoint? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. um, you know, Oregon has uh, uh, restricted its ability to fund any sort of public activity. This is more a good government thing than just affordable housing. But we, so we don't have a sales tax. We rely on a property tax and an income tax. And income taxes go up and down with the economy. Um, property taxes are more stable, but in the late 1980s, we restricted property taxes. Local government depends on property tax to fund its operation. We require local government to provide certain services like streets and sewers and electricity and that they're required to, they can't say no. Um, but we've restricted their ability to pay for it. We used mm -hmm. to, there used to be an automatic roll-up, I think of 6% a year, but people's property taxes were going high, people were complaining, so we did a ballot measure, as California had done, and we severely restricted those, and, and that affects schools as well. So oddly enough, the local funding source of property taxes is entirely regulated by state legislature. So we limit that. Um, We've looked at, uh, us, us affordable housing advocates have looked for other funding sources over the years, um, but interest groups have taken them away. Um, one common source used in lots of states is a real estate transfer tax. So realtors don't like that. Um, and they got a ballot measure and lobbied it. And so now our constitution prohibits real estate transfer taxes. Hmm. So we can't adopt one, even though it's incredibly um, cheap as a tax to collect mm -hmm. and operate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very efficient, and lots of states have it. Their economies have not gone to hell. Mm -hmm. Just 37 states have one. So it's not like a horrible idea, but we can't do that. So we take that off the table. Um, other sorts of inclusionary zoning was another one, which for a long time home builders took off. The concept of inclusionary zoning is to say to a developer that if you build 20 units, some percentage of those, often 10%, have to be, quote, affordable. affordable right. I, I'm not, I've never been a huge fan of it because what, I mean, developers, if they don't make money, they've got a business. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with making money. Uh, most people work for money. So uh, if you're going to reduce the price on two of those units, the developer has to make that up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Either make less money, and development is always risky, or charge more for the other 18 units. And usually they charge more for the other 18 units. Works great in a hot economy where you can sell the units for more. 
but um, home builders got the law to preempt exclusionary zoning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so people are, you know, it's not just uh, housing, but uh, local governments and others were looking for ways to fund things. And so they suddenly started to look at construction excise taxes. There, there also have been called linkage fees in other cities, like San Francisco okay. has had a linkage okay. fee. And often they're tied to uh, office buildings. So if you put up a 10-story office building, the theory is that there's a linkage between the office space and workers and the need for housing or other got services. Got it, got it, okay. So, you know, it's not a, not that complicated. But um, home builders got <laughs> the legislature to preempt construction excise taxes, except for, I think, schools. Schools, construction. So schools were allowed to adopt a construction excise tax um, for construction. But that law had a sunset on it. And um, that sunset was nearing. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time that the Speaker of the House got interested in trying to force something on inclusionary zoning. And so the, those two issues got combined in a bill in the, what was it, 2016, 2016, session. 2016 yeah. short session. Short session. Um, I mean, so the backstory of how it happened is kind of fun because so the Speaker of the House is very uh, proactive. She's also very, very smart, very effective. Um, and she has a lot of influence within her caucus and within the House. Uh, and so in the fall of 2015, she called together, she had also, she already tried a couple things and not gotten anywhere, but she called together a big group of people, I was one of them, and she's, it was landlords and tenant advocates, I'm the tenant advocate, and also realtors, home builders, and cities. And she broke us into two groups and she said, okay, landlords and tenants, I want you to figure out re how you can reach agreement on good cause eviction. Um, and cities and home builders and realtors, I want you to figure out how we can figure out uh, something to do about inclusionary zoning to make that work. Um, and uh, the landlord tenant group didn't, <laughs> didn't get anywhere. We got a little bit and we made a commitment to go, to go further. Mm -hmm. uh, but we, didn't, we couldn't pull it off in time for the 2016 short session. But um, the home builders and the realtors and the cities did. Mm -hmm. And really it was, it was those interest groups in a room with the speaker and her legislative assistant, a young woman named Andy Short. And um, that was it. Those were the only people in the room. Uh, so one person for the city of uh, Portland, one person for the home builders, one person for the realtors, Andy Short, the speaker. I was outside the room. So sometimes Andy Short would come out and ask questions like about property taxes. Mm -hmm. But um, otherwise it was just them in the room. And they worked out the deal, which is Senate bill, I mean House bill, well it became a Senate bill. It was a House bill initially, but for in terms of timing deadlines right. to move bills by the requirements. It went into a bill that had already passed through the Senate, Senate Bill 1533. It does inclusionary zoning and the CET. Mm -hmm. It does, I mean, there's lots of stuff in it that don't really make a whole lot of sense, but it was a political deal. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I know that in 2006, where, before there had become an, a moratorium on passing a construction excess tax, the city of Bend had right. adopted right. one. Um, and I, Coincidentally, my mom was a city councilor at the time, so okay. she very vividly remembers this. And they passed a CET at 0.33%, mm -hmm. and they had a good decade under their belt um, and had been really successful in actually leveraging those funds to, you know, because I think that as, as a tool, 
Um, when you think about the construction excise tax and the money that's generated from that, it really, not only is it, you know, obviously building a pot of money, but I think that the real value there is the fact that it's tool to leverage bigger money from outside yeah. our area. Um, and because this type of housing, affordable housing, which is, you know, designated for folks that are of low income and mm -hmm. typically it's subsidized from a variety of different sources, because we're able to leverage those funds, it, it makes our market more, you know, uh, competitive with other markets that have them. Yeah, I've, heard, so, I've heard actually rates as high as 19 to 1 that came up in Housing Policy yeah. Board earlier this week. And, I mean, I don't know how much accuracy there is to that or over how much time that is. But, right. I mean, is that... It varies by project. Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, yeah. so we... So when I first became involved in this conversation, um, the first thing I did was I, I reached out to Bend and I wanted to find out you know, tell me about your construction excise tax. You have, are the only community that's had it for more than, you know, a year or so, because a lot of, after the 2016 session and this um, Senate Bill 1533 passed, um, cities were jumping on board to adopt it, but nobody really had any any track record of success. And so it was really hard to, t to decide, you know, to really kind of figure out what's working and what wasn't and what amount um, and, and the percentage to look at. And so I reached out to the city of Bend and the, and the home builders there, and they, they um, put me in contact with the affordable housing manager at the time. And he was a wealth of information, and I sat down with him for several hours, brought him over here to Eugene to meet with our mayor and some of the folks with the housing policy board. And he had lots of great insight as far as, you know, a CET is a really helpful tool, you know, we should really consider. Um, but he but he also we were really sensitive at the time to some of the feedback that we were getting from the development community that was just feeling like things costs had gotten so high mm -hmm. you know and it's a lot of it it's things they can't control it's the cost of labor and the materials and mm -hmm. things like that mm -hmm. but when you add all that up collectively and then you add systems development charges and you add you know the transportation infrastructure that we pay for through SDCs and it, it's, it kind of adds up. And that's where then you suddenly have the situation where the, an average home is unaffordable to the average median wage mm -hmm, earner. Mm -hmm. And so concerns that we had, and we really wanted to be informed, um, you know, both obviously in representing the business community and those, those builders and developers, but also just looking larger at the larger community because workforce housing is really important to us and that's you know that's the business community that's the people who work you know who make your coffee and and who who work on day-to-day -day basis and if they can't afford their housing their market rate housing because it's they've been priced out of the market you know we had concerns about that and so while yes we need more capital a capital h affordable housing we also really have a hard we're really struggling with housing affordability mm -hmm. in Eugene. And mm -hmm. so trying to balance those two really kind of got us through conversations that we, we really uh, looked at how, if we're going to implement a CET, what, what should that look like? Mm -hmm. And how can we really make sure that we aren't causing more damage? Because if you charge a 1% CET, assuming that you're going to bring in 3% or $3 million, and you, you know, building doesn't doesn't happen the way you anticipated it to, and you bring in, you know, half of that, um, you know, it's really not generating as much as you thought. And so trying to find that sweet spot that really 
can continue to keep the momentum of going, of, of building and growing our community, but that also is not, doesn't create too much of a deterrent for a builder or developer who's going to look at a project and, you know, if they can't finance it and if a, if a home builder or a homeowner, you know, like myself, we just built a house, if we couldn't finance it because you added a four to $5,000 tax on top of it, you know, that matters to some people. And mm -hmm. so we really did spend a great deal of time and really digging in and gathering information. And so, you know, I feel like we're in a really good spot now. And I feel like where a coalition has really come together in to mm -hmm. agreement on, on that is, uh, it's the first time I've ever seen this in our community. I mm -hmm. think there's, there's a, a strong value in the fact that the, you know, the housing, afford, the affordable housing advocates and the business community and the builders and the realtors all agreed. We will, you know, we will gladly welcome a CET. They they had you know specific specific amounts that they that they were okay with, and that just doesn't happen in our community. Mm -hmm. And I think that for council at this point, you know, to to say yes to the community effort, it's mm -hmm. it's a huge turning point. And I think we've yeah, been, it's so yeah, it's so interesting to me that. It just seems like the. It just seems like when things like this come up, like the, I mean, you know, and I don't know all the steps that went into it, and obviously a lot of people, including yourself, have done a ton of work on it. But it's just staggering to me that we have gotten the builders to agree to 0.5. Exactly. You know, and that is, um, you know, it's it's a testament to the efforts, and and I mean, I, I guess that that's something that I'm interested in kind of digging in on a little bit. I mean. Is it because they saw the writing on the wall that it was coming down the pipe no matter what and that they had to kind of figure out a way to get on board? Or do they honestly see the value in, you know, in economic development in the community as a whole? Like, I, you know, I, I guess I'm just kind of curious. You know, if to be perfectly honest, I think it's a little both. And I think it depends on who you talk to. I mean, obviously, uh -huh. the Home Builders is a a broad coalition of businesses similar to the way the chamber operates and not every single business feels the same way but i think in general um they 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 came to a place where they recognized the value mm -hmm. that having a construction excise tax would bring to our community mm -hmm. and when you talk about being able to take you know one and a half million dollars and leverage 10 times that of mm -hmm. money coming from outside of the area that can actually you know, help to build up our community and the home builders and the developers and the and the folks building building everything are the same folks that are going to build build us out of that. You know, building be building affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, a lot of it's they're one and the same. So it really they really did recognize the value, um, and I think that they came to a point where they really wanted to be. Um, community leaders. I mean, they wanted to be part of the community. They wanted to be part of the conversation and part of the solution instead of, you know, just kind of drawing their line in the sand. Yeah. I mean, when has being against something like this ever been on the right side of history? It's like when you look at the broad spectrum of civil change and progress over the course of the entire breadth of human history. Mm -hmm. It's like be on the right side of history, figure out a way to get people housed, it seems mm -hmm. like. Uh, and it's great that people yeah. are, you know, figuring out a way to do that. So yeah, and I think that we've as a community, um, we haven't yet agreed. I think that's kind of where we're still stuck. We haven't agreed that we actually want more housing and more diversity and more availability mm -hmm. and affordability. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about, 
the folks who for that for them that represents change and they're scared of change right and they want they don't want their house value to drop because suddenly we've we've created a an environment where housing is more affordable so what does that mean for me does that mean my house is worth less right and then when you talk about things like neighborhood livability which i think is a real subjective term but for folks who've been living in their neighborhoods for decades and decades they've come to to just appreciate their neighborhood as is. And so the thought for them to be able to, you know, change that in any way, shape or form is really difficult. And yeah. so we've been making decisions that create winners and losers. And so you, we haven't really done a lot in the middle. It's either one side wins or the other side wins. And it's created so much tension between these two forces. Um, and I see it every day, and it, I think that with, with regards to this very specific policy that we have before us, I think it is a real opportunity for a pivotal point. And there's certainly groups on the outside of, of the broader coalition that, we're, that I'm you know, referring to that feel differently. Um, but I think that, and, and that'll continue to be the case, but I think that largely the, the folks- Both for and against? Yeah. Mostly, oh, absolutely. Yeah, okay, I mean, yeah. you have the you have With the, the people no that are, CET at all. And Nobody you have the people that are like one percent or bust. And you want the people who are one percent and <laughs> exactly. And I think that the recognizing that this is the place that we're at with with the recommendations that Better Housing Together had made mm -hmm. is that everybody took one step in towards the middle and we landed there and we all agreed on something. Mm -hmm. And we didn't start there at all. And I think that that's a real testament to the way that we are changing and evolving as a community. And I think it's a good thing. And I, and I really do hope that our policymakers see that and 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 consider that when they consider how, how they're gonna vote on, mm -hmm. on the 8th of April. Any thoughts on that, John? You was a bit of a snicker at the 1% comment. I mean, I, I, I think no, that... He wants 5%. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, think, I think at the meeting at the at Better Housing Together, I said I wanted 2 or 5 <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. If I were king, but I'm not king. Um, right. And I'm, uh, I'm a pragmatist. I, yeah. I want something. Um, I got furious when the council didn't act after the Housing Policy Board developed a proposal on KWJMA. Right. I mean, I, I'm not an absolutist in that it has to be 1% um, or that there can't be an exemption for housing under a certain cost or you can't exempt other things. But do something, damn it. Get off the dime. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, again, I know that um, last time we talked, we kind of touched on this too, but Alan Zelenka's sort of analogy about the silver buckshot, it's like we need to get that gun loaded. I mean, we need to, I mean, the, 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 this idea for those that don't know is that, you know, there's no silver bullet solution to affordable housing. We need a silver buckshot. We need a lot of little tiny solutions that are all going to contribute. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in your opinions on too is, you know, after the last, um, uh, city Council Public Forum when we were talking about, uh, I think a lot of us just sort of stood up for affordable housing in general, knowing that the um, Housing Tools and Strategies meeting was going to be a couple days after the last public forum, and a lot of us were talking about ADUs and CET. And, uh, you know, one of Mike Clark's comments was that, um, was that it's going to make 
you know, he was very adamant that this is going to make housing more expensive. And, um, you know, so I, I, I want to touch on that, too, because I, I think that, you know, he, he sort of made this statement where he was like, I want everybody to, to take me up on this bet. And I bet you mm -hmm. after X amount of time that housing will be more expensive. But that's inevitable, right? I mean, housing is always going to be more expensive. That just happens with the passage of time. What we're trying to do with this is mitigate that right. increase and and also use the extra funds to just right. make capital so affordable housing. So I think what Mike is really kind of getting at here is when, I mean, it's, ba it's basic math. When, you, when, when the cost of building a home, the, and, and the construction excise tax is the tax on the building permit fees. So right. it, it would be on residential and commercial and industrial types of construction. Well, it's not on the land. Right. So it's not on the land, but it's on the permit fees. It's on what it costs to build. And so, I mean, I think that as he's looking at it, when you add a tax to something like that, it is, you know, when you pass that along to the consumer, that's going to get passed on to them. So that house is 1% more expensive than it would have been. Um, and I think that that's kind of what he's trying to say. And what was interesting is that a lot of the folks that spoke you know, there were some students there at the um, at the at the the public hearing on the CET who were talking about how their housing it, they can't afford. And the thing about that is that I mean that's kind of the piece that you have to look at because while yes, this is a tool to leverage funds to build the type of housing that our most vulnerable popu vulnerable populations need, and we desperately need that type of housing. But at the same time where those dollars are coming from potentially is coming from the 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 the, the market rate housing from all types of housing from all types yeah. of housing and so that's kind of what he where he's getting at with it yeah. and i mean i'm sure that there is that there is um more data to su to support that we do know that when there was a, a group that came in uh, towards the end of the year and john and i both sat on the housing tools and strategies work group and um a consultant group did, a, did just an analysis on what a 1% CET would look like. And there were a couple of different housing types for which the financial feasibility was lost. And so specifically cottage clusters that were uh, for sale and, um, and lower and lower, yeah, low rise um, apartments were kind of on the cusp. And so, you know, no developer comes in and says, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna roll the dice. I'm gonna build this because right. it, it looks like I might make money off of it. Right. And I think that's kind of where where the concern is, which is also why our position is, let's just take it, let's, let's move slowly with this because mm -hmm. our market is really fragile and we, for whatever reason, we just are not seeing the building that we had traditionally yeah. and at a time when demand is as high as it can be mm -hmm. we should see we should be seeing more and the fact that we're not is just a little bit of an indicator that there is something else keeping builders from building and when you yeah. ask them they'll tell you the costs of everything mm -hmm. land labor lumber it's just high right now and yeah. um fees that the city is charging. And so kind of all of it is just working against them and making things a little bit more difficult. And that's kind of where we just want to, we, we recognize we want the tool, but we don't want to overdo it. And we don't want to charge too much and then actually discourage mm -hmm. the construction that we need to fund it. So is there, I, I, and I've heard a little bit about this and I don't know all the details, but there is sort of a, clause or a caveat sort of built into it that we can potentially ramp up to a 1% if it 
ends up being successful or is that still on the table? The, like what does that look the like? The version that is before council that is the, the version that they had the public hearing on actually uh, amend, an amendment was made to take it to start at 0.33% and then take it to 0.5 and then in 2021 up to 1%. And our collective position has been that we we recommend the original motion that was brought before council on December 10th, mm -hmm. which capped it at 0.5 and then said we then evaluate it. Okay. It didn't say we never could go higher. It just said we need to look at it and see how it's working mm -hmm. before we make that. And, and that needs to be another vote. Yeah. And there would be a subcommittee form to kind no, of. No, there's a two year sunset. Right. I mean, two two okay. year review council. Two, right. Review uh, to see how it's working. Got right. it. Um, and you know Mike Clark is going to be demanding to right. know how is it affecting housing prices. Um, but as I understand it from Chris Pryor, that it you can't, they couldn't add, increase it to 1% without having another public hearing, but they can drop it from 1% back to 5% without another public hearing. Uh -huh. So this gives them more flexibility. So got it, got it. it. That question is on the table for what okay. council acts, whether it's right. 0.5, cool. whether it goes 0.33 to 0.5, and stops there for the council review or whether it goes 0.33 to 0.5 to 0.1 without yeah. the council review. Well, I think that, I mean, this has been a tremendous amount of really good information. Um, I think that, um, you know, the, the, my biggest takeaway is that we just need to, you know, I, I do think like a lot of the counselors I've heard say that we that we have the votes to get the CET passed. But at the same time, I think that, you know, more voices showing up in support of it couldn't hurt. And, uh, and that's kind of what we're hoping to accomplish on the 8th. So, um, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I really appreciate you guys coming out. Do you have any final uh, parting words that you want to say before we uh, before we go offline here? Not to decide is to decide. One of my favorite sayings. Yes. And the uh, and here's the other thing I'll say. <laughs> my, my mom always says this, and I always take an opportunity to repeat it. It's the people who show up that get to write the rules. Yeah. <laughs> so you show up, you get to be part of the process, and... You know, it's the ones that 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 just sit and complain that have no reason to. That's so, that's so awesome. If you, if and all, and gonna, I, yeah, if you want to get involved, and you get to be part of the the solution. And I guess I'll end with an adage too, and and it's one that I've been a fan of lately. And it's that just because something doesn't solve every single problem, it's not an excuse to not pursue it and and implement it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. I like that. Yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs>